You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. I don't know if you guys have ever been to a desert. I have a few times. They usually look about like this. One of the big things missing from a desert is life of any kind. Um, you don't see a lot of people in deserts. It's very harsh conditions, not supportive of life. If you're going to go into one, you better make sure you bring plenty of water. You better make sure you bring clothing to shade yourself from that hot sun. You, better, you might want to bring something to cover your mouth to protect you from the sand and the dust to protect your lungs. And you probably want to bring like a camel or a vehicle that can handle this sort of terrain and plenty of gas to get back out because um, desert is not a place to be stranded. It's, it's not a place that supports life and... Um, you know, you could try till you're blue in the face. You're not going to get things to grow in that desert unless you, unless you bring something else in. On the other hand, occasionally in a desert, you'll stumble across one of these. Where there just happens to be an underground spring bubbling up into a little lake, a little river. You know, it looks a lot different from the desert. You see greenery, you see life, you see this teeming with life, you see water, you see shade. The kind of place where you want to you stop, you want to relax. You want to rest. And the thing that makes this different from the rest of the desert, it has something that the rest of the desert doesn't. And that would be water. It has the thing necessary for life. And that changes everything. And I kind of like this analogy because um, it sort of reminds me of my life before God. You know, I felt like before God, my life was kind of this, this harsh desert, just trying to survive. Um, couldn't get things to work, couldn't get things to grow. And I needed something. I needed God to come into my life. And what Jesus promises is this image of water. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of water will flow from within them. And we, we come to life, spiritual life. James has talked about this in his epistle that we've been studying. He says, we were born from above as a gift from God. And every good and perfect gift comes from above. And so tonight what James is going to tell us about is one of, the great, one of the great gifts God gives to us that causes our lives to come alive, that causes us to thrive. And that's what he refers to as the wisdom from above, the wisdom of God. Yes, God has a particular way of living, a particular way of looking at things that is really different from what we're used to. Sometimes it's called the backward wisdom of God because at first glance it looks like the opposite of what my instincts tell me to do, what I've, what I've grown up doing. For example, what do you do if somebody hurts you? The wisdom of the world, as it's called, says pay him back. Or at least you want to withdraw and protect yourself, right? But what did Jesus come saying? He said, no, actually love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the left cheek to them as well. That's the opposite of our instincts. God's looking at this from a very different perspective or you're longing for significance, for true greatness. What does the world say? Push others down and put yourself ahead. Yeah, that's what the world would do. Jesus, on the other hand, he says, actually, you should take the lowest place you can. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's backward wisdom right there. He says, if you want to be great, you need to become the least. You should become the servant of all. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God. And so the reason God looks at things so differently than us is because he's coming from a different place than we are. 
You know, without God, we just had to find a way to survive. You're born into this world. It's, it's a broken world. It's, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And we know we're headed toward death from a pretty early age. We have limited understanding. Who am I? What, where is this all from? What, how do I live my life? We have limited resources. We know we are limited on time and energy and money. And there's a profound loneliness at our core where we are alone. And so we kind of are, are stumbling around trying to survive, trying to make it in a, in a harsh world. It's kind of life in the desert. The difference between us and God is God, he doesn't have any of these problems. He's not born into a broken world. He's not headed toward death. He is not limited in his understanding or his resources. And he's never been alone. God is love. He exists in relationship. And so he thinks about things a lot differently than us. Instead of the self-protective, self-promoting, grasping for significance, he doesn't have to do any of that. And he wants to teach you, once you belong to him, he wants to, think you how, he wants to teach you how to think differently, how to act differently, how to live differently. Because when we come to Christ, we don't have to worry about heading toward death anymore. We have his resources at our disposal. We're never lonely again because we're, we're united with him. And so we need to be retrained in the way we think. And the problem in, in James's audience is they were still thinking on the old way. They were thinking according to the wisdom of the world. And James is going to confront his readers by painting two very different pictures. The contrast between the wisdom of the world, the wisdom from below, and the wisdom that comes from God, the wisdom from above. So we're going to see if we can learn a little bit of wisdom tonight. James chapter 3, verse 13. James starts out with this question. He says, who among you is wise and understanding? Yeah, good question. A couple uh, adjectives here. First of all, understanding. You know, Alex Matier says this word describes the well-informed person, the one who has a veritable mass of stored up, useful, helpful knowledge. And so James is saying, who's wise and understanding? Who, who among you knows some things? Who has some knowledge, some useful knowledge? Remember, uh, when we studied the earlier part of James 3, he's sort of addressing a group that wanted to be teachers but couldn't control their tongue. He might still be talking to the same group, these people that were aspiring to, to be teachers, aspiring to have a role, aspiring to, to greatness in the kingdom of God. And he's saying, you got understanding? That, that's going to be useful. James is not anti-knowledge. He thinks knowledge is important. But the point he's going to make is that knowledge alone is just not enough. Unless that knowledge, unless that understanding is combined with wisdom, you're going to have problems. Because the truth is, some people know a lot, but are not very pleasant to be around. You ever know somebody like this, the know-it-all, the person who's always showing off their knowledge, the person who is always picking a fight about trivial details, the person who is, you know, it, it just seems like conflict follows them. They exude kind of a, 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 a know-it-all arrogance. And, and that is not God's way. God is pro-knowledge, but not the kind of knowledge alone that puffs up, not the kind of knowledge that is not coupled with love. Because you can say a lot of true things, but if it's not accompanied by wisdom from above, you might actually be communicating the wrong thing. Your life can communicate something that's opposite of your words. 
and all of your knowledge isn't going to be worth much if you can't couple that with wisdom. And that's why James says, who among you is wise and understanding? You see, wisdom, wisdom is how we know what to do with the knowledge that we have. You know, we've got so much knowledge. We've got so much technology, but we don't know what to do with it. We're in the information age. Warren Wearsby says wisdom was an important thing to Jewish people. Yeah, this is kind of out of the Old Testament Jewish wisdom tradition. They knew it was not enough to have knowledge. You needed to have wisdom to be able to use that knowledge correctly. All of us know people who are very intelligent, perhaps almost geniuses, and yet who seemingly are unable to carry out the simplest tasks of life. Clearly, IQ alone is not enough to live a successful life. He says they can run computers but can't manage their lives. Take this guy, for example. You guys know who he is? This is Christopher Langan. If you've read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, he talks about Christopher Langan. This guy has the highest IQ ever measured, somewhere in the 200 range. This guy is so smart, he was talking at six months of age. He was reading at age three. He aced the SAT in spite of the fact that he fell asleep during the exam. Woke back up and finished acing it. I guess it was a pretty boring test for him. But Gladwell points out he dropped out of college the first time he went, lost his scholarship, couldn't cut it. Tried to go to Montana State, couldn't get his car fixed so he could get to class on time. Had to drop out of there as well. Then he bounced around at many odd jobs, working at factories, and even was a clam scraper, whatever that is. (laughs) He never really hit it big until he was in his mid-50s. He won a quarter million bucks on a TV quiz show, answering questions like, what's the highest grossing NC-17 rated movie of all times? Now... He had all the IQ in the world, more than anyone, more intelligent than anyone, and he couldn't couldn't seem to get his life together. You know, in full disclosure, the dude had massive biceps as well. (laughs) But a high IQ, even when coupled with massive biceps, (laughs) is still not enough. It still falls short of wisdom. I know some of you have have a high IQ and massive biceps, and and yet still, tonight, there's wisdom from God that you need to learn. Or how about this old man? World's richest man in the middle of the 20th century, J. Paul Getty, he said, I hate to be a failure. I hate and regret the failure of my marriages, and I would gladly give all my millions for just one lasting marital success. Isn't that where our lack of wisdom really shows up? We can't make our relationships work. As people get older, they just drift further and further apart as the relationships fail, one after the other after the other. And the thing that he wanted most in the world, his money couldn't buy. He didn't have the wisdom to pull it off. He had everything the world would think he would need. But what he lacked was wisdom to make a simple relationship work. And so... James asked, who among you is wise and understanding? And, um, you know, of course, wisdom starts with God. The, the fear of the Lord is the foundation of all wisdom, it says in the Proverbs. And that's not fear like I'm afraid of God, but a deep respect for God, a reverence for God. I'm paying attention to what he says. I want to know his ways. That's where wisdom really begins. God is the fount of wisdom. 
And only he can give us the wisdom that leads to salvation. And so James asks, who among you is wise and understanding? And uh, he's not looking for a show of hands. What he's looking for is a demonstration of it. He says, if you're so wise and understanding, why don't you show it by your good behavior, your deeds done in the gentleness of wisdom? Yeah, isn't this what James is all about? He says, don't just talk about your wisdom. Show it to me. Show it by your deeds. Show it by your life. He mentions a couple things here that can show our wisdom. He says good behavior, that a better translation would be the good way of life. Your way of life should show that you possess wisdom and understanding. And the word for good, it's not just the word for moral, ethical goodness. That would that'd be a different word he could have used. The word here, Alex Matier again points out, is kalos, lovely. What he speaks of is the loveliness of goodness, the attractiveness of the good life. It's wholesomeness. It's helpfulness as seen in the Lord's people. It's a way of life whose goodness is plain to all who see. Yeah, so James says, let's see your wisdom. Let's see that attractive way of life. Let's see that wholesome, helpful way of life. You know, when people look at your life, if it's a wise life, if it's the wisdom from above, they should see the kind of life they'd like to have too. That was something that really struck me. I started hanging around Christians and I was like, I want what they have. And you know, some Christians walk around sighing all the time and just talking about how hard their life is and how much they do for God. They don't really seem very happy. Happiness should be one of the chief characteristics of Christianity. We should have a happy life. That's what the word blessed means. It means happy. And the Bible says it all over the place and translators won't translate it happy. They translate it some weird church word, blessed. But happiness, a life that works, an attractive life. Other people should see that and say, I want, I want whatever he's having. I want that. James says, let's see it. Let's see your deeds, James says. Let's see it in the gentleness of wisdom or the meekness that comes from wisdom. Is that word gentleness or meekness? You know, meekness, it was a native term back then. You don't see this in the, in the ethical lists in the, the Greek philosophers. It was associated with meanness and groveling. It was ignoble, abject, servile. It's named in a list of faults by one philosopher. And you know, meekness doesn't have a very good reputation today either. Jesus came around saying, blessed are the meek. Uh, they'll inherit the earth. Charles Barkley points out, the meek may inherit the earth, but they won't get the ball. And, you know, I mean, I guess he's right when it comes to basketball. <laughs> but when the Bible talks about wisdom, it's not talking about a strategy to get rebounds. Okay, a, diff a different approach is required there, all right? That's, that's a game. But when it comes to life, Jesus extolled meekness. And so does James here. James heard the teachings of Christ. And he's extolling it here as well, just like his brother did. You know, this term was actually used of horses, powerful war horses. You know, these were horses that were, were finally broken. They were brought under control. And part of what James is asking is, I know you've got a power, but is that power being used for good? Or do you have it harnessed? 
Do you have it under control? Are you able to direct that power to serve other people? Jesus was not weak. James wasn't either. They're not extolling weakness. They're extolling meekness. Jesus was more powerful than anyone who's ever lived. And yet he says, come to me because I'm meek. I'm humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. He, he was able to work with broken people because he had that, all that power was under control and was able to use it for good. We need, to, we need the Lord to teach us to rein that in, to rein that power in. Andrew Murray has some things to say in his book, Humility. Man, what a good book. Murray says, humility is the only soil in which the grace is root. The lack of humility is the sufficient explanation of every defect and failure. <laughs> humility is not so much a grace or virtue along with others. It is the root of all because it alone takes the right attitude before God and allows him as God to do all. You wonder what's wrong in your spiritual life? What do I do? What do I seek? Seek humility. Take the low place. Become the servant of all. Reign that power under control and use it to get beneath people and lift them up. Murray says, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. As natural and easy as it has been to be proud, it must become natural for us to be humble. This is the kind of work God wants to work in you. He wants to work. It's like a fruit that is born as, as, you, as you are trained under his wisdom through the power of the Holy Spirit. Humility starts to become something that you do more naturally. You're never perfect. You're never humble all the time. But you start seeking the lower place. You start living like Christ. Wouldn't that be cool? If, if humility came, started to come as easy as pride comes for us, wouldn't that be awesome? God can do that. Here's the path to the higher life. Down, lower, down. Just as water always seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God finds men abased and empty, his glory and power flow in to exalt and to bless. Yeah, we, God is looking for the humble. He's looking to raise up the humble. And the lower we get, the more he can raise us up. Just like water kind of trickling down into the lowest spot. I want to be the lowest spot because I want the blessing of God, the power of God to flow into my life. That's the attitude we have. That's not the attitude with the wisdom of the world. I've got to put myself forward, but if God's in my corner and I'm I'm learning to live the way he teaches me to live, I don't have to lift myself up anymore. I can afford to be humble because I know my life is in his hands. He's met all my needs. I don't have to do it myself anymore. He says, but... If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be so arrogant and so lie against the truth. Yeah. So here he switches for the next three verses to the wisdom from below, the opposite of the wisdom that comes from above. He'll get back to the wisdom from above here in, in a couple of verses. But he says, don't be so arrogant and lie against the truth. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, these are hard attitudes. They launch pretty deep within us. This word for selfish ambition, it's a word Aristotle uses. It's a political term. He says it's a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. Politics. Politics. 
Yeah, isn't this what a lot of our selfish ambition is? We're seeking self and we're using oftentimes questionable means to put self forward. Rallying people to our cause, trying to get votes, trying to get attention. The wisdom of the world says put yourself forward. And then the bitter jealousy is what flares when my self-promotion is blocked, when I see someone ahead of me. But if they fail, boy, that's good news. It's an opportunity for me to move ahead. On the other hand, the wisdom from above rejoices when others succeed and is burdened when others fail. I'm sad at their failure. It really bums me out. But I'm so happy when things go well for them. And even in the face of success, I'm going to present things in a pretty modest way. Not so the spotlight's on me, but I'm trying to deflect the spotlight to God and to other people. That's what you see when somebody has really embraced the wisdom from above. It's a very secure place. And he says this, it's arrogant and lying against the truth. How is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition? How is that arrogant lying against the truth? Well, when you puff yourself up, that's really a denial of reality. I'm putting a false picture for it, one where God should be at the center, but instead it's like I've become my own God. I'm putting myself forward as number one. And eventually there will be lying in addition to that, you're going to have to eventually bend the truth. The wisdom of this world is really not concerned with the truth or reality. It's concerned with getting what I want. And uh, reality is sometimes an obstacle to what I want. People who are into the wisdom of the world, they usually, the reason their lives don't succeed is because they can't really deal with reality. They're trying to, to get their own way and they can't deal with what is. And that's one of the great things about wisdom is it helps you live life skillfully no matter what comes at you. He says the wisdom from below, it's not that which comes from above, but it's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. Yeah, so here what we've really got is the three sources of wisdom from below, isn't it? These three appear in many places in the Bible. Wisdom from below, where does it come from? Well, for one, it's earthly. Probably referring to the world, the cosmos. The world whispers its wisdom in our ears. It distracts us from eternity. It's this whole system set up to distract us from eternal things. We're actually going to talk about that in James 4. Some James readers have become friends with the world. But the, the, the wisdom from below is very short term. It's not thinking about eternal realities or anything like that. It comes with a certain way of thinking. He also says it's natural as a second in his list. This is the word from the flesh, sarkikos. There's a part of us it's like an enemy within the camp, inside of our own hearts. There's a part of us that hates God, Scripture says, that rebels against God. Even after we become a Christian, it clings on. Doesn't want to submit to God, wants to put self back at the center. And our flesh has a certain way of thinking that's right in tune with the wisdom of this world. And so that's another source that we'll get it from. A third and final one, he says, is Demonic. Yeah, you know, Scripture says not all spiritual beings are good. There are some out there that are evil. They're opposed to God. They're opposed to his ways. They think according to the wisdom of the world, and they're trying to stir up this kind of thinking as well. And so this is why this is, seems to cling to us so, so stubbornly, the wisdom of, that comes from below, the wisdom of this world. It's hard to shake off. We need God to retrain our thinking. 
And finally, he says about the wisdom from below, he says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder and every evil thing. Yeah, this is the ultimate outcome of the wisdom of the world. He says disorder, and that word is a disorder that comes from instability. Remember that person back in James 1 who was unstable in all of his ways, tossed around by the waves and the storm and double-minded? It's, it's that same, same idea, same, same root word. So there's this disorder that comes from instability. Your life is falling apart, your relationships are falling apart, and every evil thing, which is just sort of a catch-all. The point is you don't want to go there. This is not what you want. It might look pretty nice for a, for a second or two, but the wisdom of the world yields long-term disastrous results. It's basically life in the desert, the harsh desert. Every, every person for himself, the law of the jungle, if you will. But then, meanwhile, James takes us back to that oasis where the wisdom of God is flowing in, shaping our perspective. And he gives us eight traits of the wisdom from above. He says, first of all, it's pure. And this purity, this is a moral purity. This is unmixed with any, any evil at all. God's wisdom is not going to lead us into evil. God would never do that. This is pure, pure wisdom. The way of life. We don't have to worry that he's going to lead us astray. Unmixed with any evil. And really, the, the other seven traits he, he lists sort of unpack this purity that James is talking about here is first in his list. He also says it's peaceable. Peaceable, yeah. True peace is what this leads to. The wisdom of the world leads to conflict. This is why people are alienated, fighting with one another. It's true peace. This is not peace faking. Peace faking is where you just kind of pretend to get along and you keep your distance. This is sometimes practiced at um, family gatherings, sometimes practiced with roommates um, who you just, you just, they just rub you the wrong way or you rub them the wrong way. Um, yeah, peace faking is often practiced in uh, families like uh, marriages often fall back into this when they just can't seem to get the marriage to work for real. They peace fake until the thing falls apart altogether. That's not what he's trying to get us to do. The wisdom from above doesn't lead to peace faking. It also does not lead to peace at any price. It's not like peace is so important that I'll do anything to get it. We would never compromise truth to get peace, even though that's tempting to do sometimes. Scripture says we do need to speak the truth in love. Jesus said, you know, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And sometimes... There's a short-term conflict, tension, that will lead to long-term peace. But where we have to take a stand. Truth is really important when it comes to the wisdom from above because truth comes from God. Sometimes our silence can enable things. It can enable destructive behaviors. We sit there silently while our friend deteriorates in the throes of addiction. Or do we speak up? Well, they wouldn't, they wouldn't want me to say anything. Well, it's not what the person wants. The wisdom from above is concerned with what the other person needs. It's concerned with doing the loving thing. We're silent in the face of illegal activities with people we know uh, in our workplace. 
We're silent in the face of harmful behaviors, destructive behaviors we see in other people's lives. We might need to speak up. They might not like it. But we need to be prepared for that because um, it's okay if they, if they don't like me for a little while because I know God loves me and I have a stability. They can't be shaken from that. You know, when you side with God's word, that can bring tension. You know, I'm not, you know, um, if it's what God says or what you want me to say, I'm going to have to go with what God says. No, I can't just say always lead to the top because Jesus said I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And there's people that are really not going to like that message. But it's true and they need to hear it because Jesus is the only way according to his very words. And for us to say anything else would be lying because we care more about their opinion than about God's opinion. Yeah, you know, even in those tense times, we're going in reluctantly. We're not just itching for a fight. And um, we hunger for peace. We want to get back to peace. We're not happy about this. We, we'll do this, though, because we know this is what's right. And so we're peaceable. And the wisdom from above, maybe we need to ask God, how, how can I bring peace in this situation? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. That's what a lot of these characteristics have to do with. They have to do with peace. We need God to teach us what is the wise way forward that's going to bring peace without compromising truth. And, of course, there's only so much we can do. Romans 12 says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. And so there comes a point where we just need to back off and realize um, it takes two to make peace, ultimately. And um, I've, I've done everything I can as wisely as I can, and I just need to... I need to circle back around later maybe here. Wisdom from above is also gentle. Definition for this, it's not insisting on every right of letter or law or custom. There's a legalistic exacting that the wisdom from above wants nothing to do with. It's a wisdom of grace. It's kind and tolerant or other synonyms for this Greek word that James uses here. Kindness, tolerance, not exacting. These are the sort of attitudes. These are the sort of ways of behaving that make for peace in our relationships. It's also reasonable. I love this one. I love this word. Wisdom from above is reasonable. Other synonyms, cooperative. Flexibility. Are you flexible? Teachable is a real good synonym for this one here. Are you teachable? Can you listen to somebody else's opinion? They're easy to please, easy to, get a hard, easy to get along with, and hard to offend. Yeah, that's the way we should be. Easy to please, easy to get along with. They're the kind of person you just want to hang out with. The wise person. You love being around them. Um, part of it is because you feel safe around them. And part of it is because they have the skills that make for peace. You know, this person can be an agitator without being an aggravator. You're even able to agitate in ways that are not super annoying and condescending. Now you're reasonable. A reasonable, teachable person. If you're teachable, that means you're humble enough to listen to the other person's argument. I might even change my opinion if it turns out they're right. You know, sometimes once you've taken a stand with your position... It's too embarrassing to say you were wrong and to, to reverse your position, but the wise person's fine with that. They're seeking truth, and they're humble enough to set their ego aside 
to have a reasonable conversation. You know, ask yourself in this argument that you're in, can I at least see where they're coming from? Do I have any sympathy? Or would you have to be a complete idiot to think what they're thinking? To come from where they're coming from? I mean, maybe they are a complete idiot in, 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 in select cases, but most of the time that's probably not 100% true. Empathy is an important element in wisdom. Can I even remember any of the points that they're making? You ever been in an argument where <laughs> you're arguing your case and you're thinking about what you're going to say next and you can't even remember what they said? You don't even know what their argument was because you're not listening. That's not the wisdom from above. That's the ego-involved, self-first approach. It's the wisdom of the world. I think it can be helpful to shift our thinking a little bit. We like to think in terms of blame, like you're 100% at fault. No, you're the one at fault here. Most arguments, most conflicts are not that way. We need to learn to think more in terms of contribution. What contribution did I make to this conflict? And then maybe the other person can articulate, maybe you could articulate that first, and maybe the other person can articulate what their contribution was. You've got to break that back and forth combative cycle. And it might surprise the other person to see you break the back and forth. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. You know, I think I might have some wrong here. That can change the entire demeanor of that argument. Am I willing to honestly pray about the conflict? Yeah, this is part of where the wisdom from above comes in is because we have a God that speaks. A God that if we listen, remember what James said, if anyone, if you want wisdom, just ask God. He gives to all generously without finding fault. Just make sure that you want to hear from him. Am I willing to honestly pray about it? God, expose my blind spots here. What am I missing? Yeah, that's a great prayer. God would love to answer that prayer. If you have ears to hear. Sometimes what I need to do is I need to thank God. There's times where I'm like, I think I'm wrong. I think I might be wrong here. But I just find there's a part of me that can't admit that until I say, Lord, thank you that even if I might be wrong here, you love me anyway. And sometimes that's all it takes to unlock my thinking about the situation because it, what it shows is I had been thinking according to the wisdom of the world. That unsafe place. That, that law of the jungle place. And that's not what we're under anymore. We're under the law of grace. Oh, the wisdom from above is full of mercy. Yeah. You know, a lot of James's readers grew up admiring this group called the Pharisees, which were just about as legalistic and exacting as you could get. And they thought that's what spirituality was. And Jesus came along and blew their expectations out of the water. And I think some of his readers might still be stuck in the Pharisaic mindset. That exacting is spiritual. You know, when I realize how much I've been forgiven, how can I not extend that same forgiveness to other people? When I think about the chances that people took on me, when I think about how I mess people over and how people open their heart back up to me, when I think of the sick and twisted and secret stuff that I've done, when I think how many years people have hung in there with me and how they've forgiven me for hurting them in some of the most horrid ways, how can I not turn around and extend that same mercy to other people? 
People should be surprised by how gracious you are. That's what should shock people. You know, it's where I just, I've had this experience where I come in and I'm just like, I got to admit this thing. And I build it up in my mind how they're going to respond. And I've put it off already for weeks or months, in some cases years. <laughs> and you go in and you're like, Ugh! and you say what you needed to say. And they're just like, oh, that's it? I thought you were going to say something really bad. It's nothing they haven't struggled with. It's nothing they can't empathize with. You know, they're wincing, waiting for the hammer blow of law. And instead they get the embrace, the open arms of grace. They're forgiving us as they've been forgiven. And what a great place that is to live. What a Christian community characterized by full of mercy. Where we're taking people that everybody else has given up on. And we're like, you know, I think I can make something of this guy, this gal. My, um, my next door neighbor, a year ago his house got condemned. Because it looked like this. Pretty much every board in that house was rotting out. He'd been living out in his van and, and on the street for about four months, all winter long. Um, the city said, you can't go back in there until you fix this stuff. He didn't have the money to fix it. He put it on the market. And when the, real, when the realtor listed it, the listing said, um, full demolition most likely required. But you know what? Somebody bought that house... And they thought, you know, I, th I think this house is um, rehabilitatable. And this guy went through with his crew and replaced almost every board in the house. Ripped out the entire floor, rebuilt it with not rotting boards, replumbed the whole thing, put new wiring in the whole thing, knew everything in there. Um, at one point, the, uh, the block, the cinder block wall in the basement was, was bowing in, jacked up the house, ripped the wall out, rebuilt the wall properly, and then lowered the house back down onto the sill plate. And today, it's looking a lot better. It's looking like this, and it's for sale for a whole lot more than he bought it for. Honestly, when he paid what he paid for it, I thought, you, you got ripped off, man. But he saw something there. And I think that's a lot of our story. You know, our, our, our listing said full demolition most likely required. <laughs> but God was like, I don't know. I think I can make something of this guy. And he moved in. And he began to do a work of grace in our lives. Began to teach us the way of wisdom. This room's full of... of Nutcases and terminal cases who have been transformed by God. Chuck Smith gives the example of a, a, of a horrific car accident. And he said two, two types of emergency vehicles pull up. The first one is the cops. And they get out and they're looking up their rule book and they're measuring the tire tracks and who hit who and, you know, who's at fault. And they're, you know, the, the guy's lying there bleeding and they're writing him a ticket and handing it to him. Because, and they're reading them their rights and, you know, you have the right to remain silent, but this will be used against you in a court of law. And 
They got to figure out who's at fault. They got to apply the law. But then the ambulance pulls up and they don't care who did what. (laughs) They just see hurting people, bleeding people, and they're strapping people in so they're safe. They're checking pulses. They're giving fluids. They're bandaging people up. They're putting them in the ambulance and they're taking them to the hospital as fast as they can because they just want to help. And there's really two types of uh, ministries. We can be more like the police officer that's scolding people and what you did wrong and this may be used against you. You idiot. What you think was going to happen? Or we can be the kind that moves in and sees hurting people. And we start doing whatever we can by the grace of God fix people up. Take people to a place where they can heal and get back on their feet and become fellow workers. It's full not just of mercy, but good fruits as well. Yeah, the wisdom from above. I love the fruit imagery. Yeah, God is delivering these qualities in your life like a tree producing fruit in a peaceful garden. We think, I can never be this way. We must muster up our effort, our self-effort, and that's not how it works. The wisdom from above by the Spirit of God begins to produce every kind of good fruit like a peaceful garden setting. And it's good fruit, too, when God produces it. It's unwavering. Again, unlike the waverer in James 1, we're unwavering. And the world's got so many opinions and so much pressure to change to this and that latest fad. But God's wisdom stands firm on God's truth. And our feet are, with our feet planted on the rock, we're in a stable place. And we're... we're We're in a steady spot where we can love other people and give with the resources God gives us. And finally, it's without hypocrisy. You know, it's funny, this word, um, hypocrite, it's a term originally from the Greek theater. Yeah, they would try to get each actor to wear as many masks as possible, to play as many roles as possible, because the less actors you had to pay, the more of a profit you could make on your production. And so the guy runs on stage with a happy mask on because he's supposed to be happy. And then he runs off real quick. And then he runs back on stage with a sad mask on because he's supposed to be sad. And that's what the audience needs to see. And then he's back off stage and he's back on again with an angry mask. Putting on mask after mask, trying to be what people want us to be. And the wisdom from above doesn't need that anymore. We don't need to run around pleasing everybody. And I'll tell you, before Christ, I wore myself out trying to be whoever people wanted me to be. Maybe some of you can relate. It's like I could never actually be myself because I was so busy trying to take the temperature of what the people around me wanted. But the wisdom of God, it frees us up to please God, to love other people. I don't have to worry about what they want me to be. I can be the person God has made me to be. And what you'll find is when people come to Christ and get into the wisdom of God, the real them begins to come out. And it's pretty cool to see people's personalities just blossom as they walk with God. I love it. You see that sense of humor come out. You see them saying what they really think. Which a lot of times is pretty discerning. They just weren't allowed to think that before. It's just a sweet picture here. This wisdom from above, and it's all because of God, what he's given us and the way he teaches us to live. 
And the outcome, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Yeah, peace and righteousness. That's the eventual outcome of the wisdom from above. And you know, uh, that's about as far as you can get. Remember the, the fruit of the other way? Disorder from instability and every evil thing. Well, now we've got peace, order, stability, and righteousness. It's about as far in the good direction as you can get from the other way. And I like the seed imagery again. He says, sowing these seeds is going to reap a harvest of righteousness. It's sown in the soil of peace by those who make peace. This is Christian community. It's a peaceful place. It's a great place to grow. It's a safe place to grow. And, um, you know, with sowing, the harvest is delayed. And you always harvest more than you reap. Yeah, wisdom kind of has a cumulative effect. If you're wise enough to act on the wisdom of God, it's maybe a little harder at first, but then you start to reap the benefits of wisdom. And it becomes easier and easier to act in accordance with the wisdom of God. The folly is just the opposite. The foolish person takes the path of least resistance and then has to do it again next time because they've dug themselves into an deeper, deeper hole. No. The wisdom, though, it's delayed and you always harvest more than you reap. That's just the basic law of sowing and reaping. It just tends to build on itself. And as you start living this way and you see the wisdom of it, you want to do this even more. And you really, you, you just, you learn to love, love, love wisdom. And ultimately and finally, you'll experience peace. Isn't that what everybody's searching for? The peace that surpasses understanding You'll have peace in your relationships. You'll have peace, peace in your home, peace someday in your marriage. Wouldn't you love to have a peaceful, happy marriage? Wouldn't you love to have a peaceful, happy family? Wouldn't you love to have the kind of home where people come into it and they just feel like this is a safe place from the desert that's out there and I can just lay, lay down my burdens for a minute and relax and enjoy the peace that is here before I have to go back out into that harsh world. And ultimately, this peace is a peace that comes from knowing that I have peace in my heart, peace that comes from the peace with God that's only available as a free gift through Jesus Christ. You can have a life of peace. And that's the wisdom from above. Yeah, Lord, you, you just approach things from a totally different perspective from a totally different starting point, Lord, and you, you set our feet on solid ground when we come to Christ. Not because of something we've done, but because of a free gift. Thanks, Lord, that as a result, we can have your wisdom, Lord. We can have a life that, that works no matter what circumstances are thrown at us, Lord. It gives us stability to love one another, God, no matter how other people treat us. It gives us that toughness, um, combined with gentleness and peaceableness, Lord, and that it makes us full of mercy, Lord. Thanks that we, we get to reflect your mercy, Lord, um, in a small portion of the mercy you've given to us, God. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.